Welcome back to the World of Commerce podcast. I'm your host, Marcel Hollerbach. I'm still at Shop Talk in Las Vegas. And in this episode, I spoke with Christian Hasselt. Christian is the VP of Corporate Development at Commerce IQ. And Christian and I, we spoke about the explosion of software tools uh, within brands and retailers today. We spoke about mergers and acquisitions and what happens after a company gets acquired. And we also touched on the circular economy and how products can be reused. So please enjoy my conversation with Christian. Have fun. Let's go. Welcome back to the uh, World of Commerce podcast. Um, I'm here with Christian Hasselt. I think the two of us, we've met all over the world, basically. Boston, Frankfurt, now we're in fabulous Las Vegas. We met in Berlin once, too. True, true. Berlin, mm -hmm. right. So... Um, Before you, you introduce yourself, Christian, I've got a question for you. Um, since this is a commerce podcast and we're at Shop Talk here, what's an item that you recently purchased that you really love and, and why? Great question. Uh, so actually, I'm turning 51 on Friday, and uh, I actually had to kind of skip my 50th birthday because uh, we were just coming out of COVID and I didn't want to have a party and I really just didn't celebrate it. So I actually bought myself a 10-piece drum set last weekend. Nice. Uh, I purchased it on Facebook Marketplace because uh, I, I didn't want to buy something new. And, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, I, I have some skills, but um, I'm going to be working on those drum skills. So I thought I'll go with something used and, and work my way into it. So uh, got, got it approved by the wife. It's set up in the basement, and uh, I'm going to be slamming away on those drums when I get home on Saturday. So is it is it like an, an e-drum set or like a proper one? No, it's it's proper. Proper. It's a, it's a Pearl uh, semi-professional. So hello, neighbors. <laughs> yeah. My, well, fortunately, I live on a fairly large property. Do you use uh, Facebook Marketplace frequently? I think you're amongst the first persons I speak to who, who purchases something there. You know, it's fascinating. We, My wife and I use it a lot. Uh, we actually are constantly getting rid of things. And we find that the marketplace is a really efficient way to just get rid of things at, you know, either free or low value. Mm -hmm. uh, conversely, you know, right now I'm on the market for a wine refrigerator and, you know, a brand new wine refrigerator for 200 bottles is, you know, a few thousand. So yeah. there's, there's like hundreds that are available. And I think what marketplace, what Facebook has done or Meta has done with marketplace over the last couple of years is really make Uh, things are a lot more transparent and a lot more fluid. And, you know, you have delivery options built into some of the listings now. So I'm, I'm a fan. It's, you know, nice. it's really kind of become a much more, uh, I think, professionalized version of Craigslist uh, for those items. And uh, why would you choose it over eBay? Uh, so, you know, eBay I'll use for... Uh, You know, if I know, so I may be a little bit more of a sophisticated buyer because I'm in the space, maybe, I'm not sure. But if I want um, a refurbished laptop or if I want some piece of equipment that I want a higher level of certainty mm -hmm. that it's going to be what I what I bought, then I'll, I'll go to eBay or I'll go to Amazon mm -hmm. and buy one of the used items. Um, but if I'm just looking for something where... I'm going to be able to look at it really quickly, touch and feel and see, and especially be able to pick it up right away, then I'm more likely to go to marketplace or okay, sort of got a it. secondary channel like that. I, I, you know, there's definitely a degree of trust that you have to install in the Facebook 
uh, ecosystem. Yeah. But I, by and large, my experience has actually been really positive. I I've sold on there successfully, and I think if you're you know you're good you're you're a good seller uh, and you're a good buyer, like you can you make it work. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, we are um, at products that we're working quite a lot with Facebook, and it feels like they're struggling a little bit with uh, like the Instagram checkout kind of things that they're doing. Yeah. But I heard good things about Marketplace. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Nice. So give you the chance to introduce yourself, Christian. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for uh, the opportunity. Uh, so I'm Christian Hasselt. I'm a recovering entrepreneur. Uh, I've been in enterprise SaaS for 23 years. I've started three companies uh, and sold each of them, uh, two in private transactions and one in a public transaction. My last company, Hublogics, which was an e-commerce logistic company, logistics company, sold to Channel Advisor in 2017. And uh, so prior to that, I had essentially been an operator, uh, like founding and or running companies. And uh, at the point that I sold to Channel Advisor, uh, I had the golden handcuffs on for a couple of years. And <laughs> David Spitz, the CEO, who was a, a real great uh, partner to me, uh, said, hey, you know, what do you want to do here after I was sort of roaming around the hallways right. for a few weeks? And I said, you know, I really love uh, building you know, inorganic value. I really like corporate development. I've done several deals in my past just as a part of my work. And he said, well, you know, go run it. So uh, I ran and I built that function at Channel Advisor uh, for various reasons. We, we never got a deal done, but um, I had a great experience there. And I went on to Salsify and uh, was principal to their acquisition of Alchemix. And following that, uh, I just really got committed that Corp Dev was where I wanted to play. And uh, I'm now at Commerce IQ, where I run both corporate and business development. Uh, and in the last year, I've overseen uh, two deals, the acquisition of eFundamentals mm -hmm. and the acquisition of IdealClick, which was a, uh, an agency based in uh, Seattle. Nice. And uh, so uh, we're, we're not done with what we're doing. Um, Commerce IQ has got a real big vision to uh, uh, make it much easier for brand manufacturers to operate in an omni-channel environment. And, uh, and so uh, both uh, organic or inorganic are a part of our growth plan. I guess that vision is, uh, leaves a very open uh, playing field. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of brand manufacturers have a lot of pains to solve. And traditionally, the way they've solved those pains is by purchasing point solutions that are disconnected and disparate. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's really in the way of a brand manufacturer's execution of market share, gaining more market share, growth and profitability, mm -hmm. is just breaking down the silos of the organization. And point solutions actually contribute to the proliferation of silos. Right. And so if it's one thing I think we can do as tech entrepreneurs is think about ways that we can both... Um, execute breadth and depth mm -hmm. um, and get marketing and e-commerce and the advertising teams, the the in-store teams and the supply chain teams uh, collaborating and communicating together uh, in a way that recognizes the at one point or another e-commerce will be equal to what um, the brick and mortar business is. Mm -hmm. And if we're not, uh, you know, rowing in the same direction, it's just going to be harder to to gain that market share and in a and that growth in a profitable way. I love that. Um, I think the difference between brick and mortar and e-commerce and why you have this proliferation of so many different tools and systems and stuff and silos is uh, probably the 
speed in which it has developed, right? So in brick and mortar, I guess brands and retailers, they had decades of time basically to robust their processes and, and figure out how to do stuff. And while, I mean, the internet as we know it is probably 20 years old now, right? And um, there's new challenges coming up almost Uh, like every year now, while it used to be probably two to four years that uh, companies had time to figure out what Amazon is or figure out what Google is. Now, the cycles of innovation, they are quicker and quicker. I think if you just look at TikTok, for example, how quickly they went from zero to a billion users, it's it's amazing, right? And my assumption is that um, a lot of these um, companies, they basically, they see something they need to wrap their head around and then they reach out to a vendor or they or the internal IT department say let's let's fix this right and that has led to the fact that you have such a fragmented um, tool stack now right and as you said um, departments don't com collaborate with each other they don't communicate and I have the same feeling as you I think it's a it's the time now to figure out how to roll that back somehow and unify things because otherwise you're just adding to the mess, basically. Yeah, so I, I think about um, e-commerce is incredibly volatile uh, as a channel, and its volatility is presenting new challenges to brands every single day, to retailers every single day, and it moves incredibly fast. And you know, uh, as both as entrepreneurs, we know that when we build a solution to solve a problem, uh, we have to go really deep into understanding, you know, what is the pain and how are we resolving this pain? And it sort of creates sort of this, um, this suspension of time mm -hmm. where the pain that we identified on January 1st, 2020, mm -hmm. uh, has substantially evolved to January 1st, 2023. Our product team is sort of building from that point of start. But meanwhile, our, our customers, the brands, are experiencing a massive amount of volatility and change every single day. But I think the good news is True North for most brands, I believe, is you know the basics still really matter. What's your brand strength? Mm -hmm. Where are your weaknesses? What are you doing about it? How is your assortment? Is it right? What do you need to do to make it different? There's competitive volatility happening. How are you measuring? How are you adapting? How are you changing? And then how are you adapting your advertising strategy against where you're winning organically versus where you're not winning organically? And yeah. how are you sort of working all and, and those are really the basics. And just in those three things I said, I've mm -hmm. I've brought together three fundamental different functions within the brand, which is the people who make the content mm -hmm. and who have to optimize the content for a very volatile channel, the people who um, have to manage the supply chain and think about um, product and packaging and, and pricing and promotions. And, and so you've got the merchandising team as well. You've got all these different functions. If they don't collaborate and communicate, then uh, it just makes it harder for Uh, the the brand to again grow profitably and, and gain the market share yeah. and competition. So can I assume that this is also like your guiding north star when you are evaluating the market and you're looking at M and A targets at the moment? Yeah. So we're a, Commerce IQ is a platform, and the way that we think about growing our business is we are a product led company. We're highly convicted in our ability to build uh, a best in class product. Um, as a part of that, there's um, some cases where we might buy and or partner to accelerate roadmap. 
An example of a place where we might um, buy is mature market solution, where why would we go and build it? So I go back to why we acquired eFundamentals last summer. Digital Shelf Analytics has been around for 10 years. Uh, there was no re reason for us to start from zero and, and build that tech. We identified what we believe was the best company in the space, mm -hmm. uh, led by John Maltman, who now is our chief customer officer. They'd, they'd really uh, fundamentally executed in all the right ways as a market leader, and they had the right culture fit for us. And um, so we did a build by analysis and we said, you know, we could spend the next three to four quarters building this and probably a couple more quarters figuring out the, right. the, the, the uh, go to market motion, or we could do the acquisition and significantly speed and integrate within our product. And, and so that's the type of decision making that goes on. And my role in that equation is not to answer the questions for the team, but it's to facilitate the right conversations to mm -hmm. make sure that as we go about the evaluation process, we are we're asking very critical questions. Will we we gain more uh, share of the sellable addressable market? Um, is this the right product fit? Is this the right culture fit? Uh, if we do this, how will we run the go to market motion? Like just making sure the team is thinking through all these questions. So when we land on signing day, we we have a very clear, clear plan for for going to execute. It's a very elegant way of talking about sort of the 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 M&A process, but you're essentially a ringleader mm -hmm. um, to a really um, important part of company's growth. And everywhere along the way, that collaboration and coordination with your partners is uh, is really critical. So going back to where you started with the question, um, that that evaluation is um, a very holistic evaluation of um, where are the right places to invest. I think some companies uh, do M&A for calories, just you know, bulking up ARR. Mm -hmm. And in certain contexts, that's okay. But uh, the big deals you do, the ones that are um, gonna take a meaningful amount of uh, cash from the balance sheet, those, those should be strategic and they should right. fit your strategic framework. Right, yeah. Did you see any major fuck ups in uh, M&A transactions in the last years that you kind of can share some <laughs> insights. <laughs> I, I, I guess, I mean, out of my own experience of financing rounds and yeah. M&A, there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong. Yeah. And uh, it's it's very emotional oftentimes, right? So, I mean, as a, say, as an entrepreneur, how often in your life do you sell a company, right? That yeah. happens, if you're lucky, it happens once. If you're super lucky, it happens twice. Yeah. There's uh, the rare uh, amount of people who did it probably three times, but... Not not much more often than that, right? So um, I guess a lot of things can go south. Yeah, a lot of things can go south. I, it's actually kind of counterintuitive, or maybe it's intuitive. It depends on what lens you come from. But the number one thing you have to get right is the people. Mm -hmm. You have to absolutely make sure that one, uh, you're acquiring a culture that you can bring on to the mission, and you have conviction that the right keys are going to be there to help bring the rest of the company along. And then you really have to have a shared vision with that team and be testing in advance of, of you know, the signing day that you're going to be really aligned on the vision. Those two things, if they're not in place, then nothing else really matters because mm -hmm. if you're not going to create the value of the deal. Um, a lot of people optimize towards, um, or I think a fallacy that I see, see uh, time and time again is, you know, best in class tech, 
their software stack has to be perfect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all these other attributes that are really sort of things that you fundamentally, uh, you, 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 you can control those things. You, right. Over time, you can solve for those things. What you can't solve for is humans. Right. Uh, and so I always put people at the top of the M&A pyramid. Um, and, and what I've seen happen in the past is uh, too quick to assume that there's alignment um, alignment meaning what's the founder going to do mm -hmm. the day after we acquire this deal? What's his role going to be? What's the role of the keys? Have we adequately incented them to uh, be aligned to the success model mm -hmm. where we're going as what they think winning looks like on the other side of the finish line, what we think winning looks like? Um, some people think working those things out after the fact uh, is is going to work, but it's, it's really uh, something you need to have solved well before uh, you you close, uh, that that to me is sort of where yeah. you should be, just constantly uh, assessing. Have you done all the covered off all the, the questions? Couldn't agree more. Um, I think one of the most probably weird and interesting meetings in my life that I had was um, a couple of years ago. I, I was living with my wife in Palo Alto. Yeah mainly doing a lot of like partnership and relationship work. And I got an introduction to um, someone working in corporate development at Google. So I was like, wow, <laughs> that's my lucky day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm driving out to Mountain View and uh, I'm meeting that guy. And it turns out, um, so I was a friend of a friend and it turns out that the role of this guy was not to, um, to basically evaluate like potential M&A targets and so on. He was actually um, um, an educated uh, psychiatrist and, and a coach that Google hired on the uh, corp dev team. And his major um, um, goal was basically to coach the entrepreneurs that Google acquired through the process of the two, three year earnout that they have at Google. Because he said back in the days that was 2018, Google approximately acquires like two companies um, a month, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's, it's a lot more than you see in the news. Like they do a little, a lot of like small acquihires and uh, small acquisitions. And they discovered that over all of these acquis acquisitions they do, roughly half of the entrepreneurs, they leave after 12 months yeah. and leave a lot of money on the table yeah. um, of their earn out because they simply can't stand literally being a nobody anymore basically right in a, in a big organization so this um this guy we we walked over the google campus campus for two hours and talked about life and goals and and all of all these kind of things it was yeah. super interesting but yeah. his his objective basically was really to keep the founders engaged and to keep them at google and like um yeah just support them uh to not uh, leave too early yeah you're making me think back to um uh the day uh, that uh, Channel Advisor uh, closed on the acquisition of my company. I mean, it's it wasn't a lar it was it wasn't as large of a deal as I would have liked, but it was a good deal. And um, you know, to to have a public company of mean in the market uh, complete an acquisition of a business that you built from the ground uh, is a thrill, and the the closing dinner is always a lot of fun. But then mm -hmm. the next day, you wake up and you ask yourself. Hmm. Well, now what do I do? Mm -hmm. And you have handcuffs on and you negotiated a really hard for you know an agreement that has got a lot of uh, KPIs and outcomes tied to it. But, you know, I remember walking into the channel advisor office for the first time and 
everybody in the company was just very welcoming and friendly and wanted time with me. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, that that was a great experience. Um, but a couple of weeks going in, it just kind of became really clear. They're all like, well, what are you going to do here? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think someone thought I was going to be in charge of the product, but I'm like, I'm not a product person. Mm -hmm. Someone thought I was going to be in sales, but it's like, I'm not a AE. Right. Uh, I mean, I'm there to support the, the sure. execution, but the, 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 the miss, you know, it's the channel, the, the company is now, you know, a new hand. So maybe this is uh, letting a little in the covers. They never actually asked me like, well, what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. uh, now, it was fortunate that I thought, you know, David um, was really uh, uh, just it, someone who's a pleasure to work with and pretty easygoing, uh, gave me a little room to kind of figure it out myself. Uh, that's not something you really want to do. But um, but that experience of transforming from the founder to figuring out how to materially contribute to an executive team and to materially contribute to the, the the growth of the company, both through inorganic and through partners. And a lot of the impact that I have is more through the partner channel. Um, that that was a, that was an experience, and there were several times where just process and meetings mm -hmm. and paperwork mm -hmm. and you know, very simple things like. You know, their security didn't allow us to use Outlook. So now I had to learn how to use <laughs> freaking G Suite. I mean, it was practically aggravating. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of things you go through. And every once in a while, you're like, wow, this is just complicated. I should just go do something else. Um, but I stuck it out for the full two years. I actually stayed for a little over two years. Mm. Um, and I was just on the verge of being offered uh, essentially a promotion to a little bit more of a role. But um, I didn't. I wasn't confident that com that uh, channel advisor really wanted to be uh, strategically acquisitive. I wanted to be more sort of do smaller deals, yep. and I really wanted to do transformational kinds yep. of deals. Yep. But we did at Salsify with Alchemics yep. and what we're doing at Commerce AQ. These are transformational deals, yep. and that's what it, it excites me. Nice. Another topic I want to touch with you on is um, I, I, in my mind, I sometimes call you Mister Mister Europe. <laughs> <laughs> because that's where you spend a fair amount of yeah. time right and you yeah. you also did some transactions there yeah. um do you do you think there are like differences between um between m a in in the us and europe but also in the way how companies operate in the way how they go to market this is a long question sorry yeah. and then also if you look into um we can touch on that as well, how, how clients behave, basically brands and retailers in the various regions. So I guess you've got a wealth of uh, experience there by now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I had the very good fortune when I was at Channel Advisor to spend a lot of time in both the UK and Germany. Uh, prior to that, um, I'd been pretty well traveled in Europe and my mom is uh, Swedish, so I actually spent a fair amount of time in, uh, in Sweden as well. So Europe was not intimidating to me. Um, I think, you know, to get to the uh, answer of your question in a crisp way, I'd say culture, um, people, and uh, really understanding, you know, the, the nuances of the 40 some odd countries uh, in, in the European region, like uh, what, it, what does it mean? So I, I think um, starting with culture, um, America is a country of largely workaholics uh, <laughs> or people who are constantly battling work-life balance. Mm -hmm. uh, in Europe, work-life balance is uh, in the DNA. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit of a culture shock to realize that there are bank holidays. People just take time off and they don't check email. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, that's 
that's the way it works. Like you, there's no challenging that system. In fact, you should embrace that system right. and you should, you should mimic that and appreciate it because they, they value family and their lives in a different way than Americans. It's not, I wouldn't say it's a good or bad. It's just mm -hmm. say we do, we do things different and we need to appreciate one's cultural differences. And that break, that cultural difference breaks down to people, which is the way in which you work with people. I think in the States, we become sort of a part of our company. We sort of feel like I am a part of Commerce IQ, like mm -hmm. I am Commerce IQ. Mm -hmm. In in Europe, the people are I am I am a mother first. I am uh, I have got I'm a friends to my best friends. I mm -hmm. am living the best life I can possibly live. And this thing that I do from eight to four or nine to five is something that makes all these other things possible. Right. Uh, so understanding how people are motivated and what excites them. The other thing is really blows me away about people is from country to country, the way they culturally function is so different. So for example, <laughs> totally. when I worked for Salsify uh, in Portugal initially, I mean, the people were so brilliant but very process oriented. Uh -huh. And the whole country is process oriented. Um, it's like step one is this, step two is that, and step three is outcome. And you can't skip step two. You skip step, skip two, step two and you've sort of broken the system. You go to Poland and they will break everything. <laughs> they have no rules. I love like, that. <laughs> they just, no problem breaking things. I mean, there's some people in Poland because of their employment rate at one time had two jobs. It was just sort of normal for someone to have two full-time jobs. There was like, uh, and and they disrupt, and they're lean, and you know uh, they just they operate. And so, uh, you know, it, it, I could go around the whole region and mm -hmm. just talk about sort of the different ways and behaviors in which people work. And if you want to operate effectively in the region, you have to understand the culture and the people underlying the businesses within. Um, but to go to the bigger question that you were asking. One of the things that I decided while I was at Channel Advisor was um, there was not a lot of people who understand not just the commerce ecosystem and the nuances between U.S. and Europe, but but the way of operating. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a great opportunity with Salsify to help start their go-to-market function. Uh, I had to learn some tough lessons. I had some great successes in building our partner ecosystem. The partners that I worked with, the team, uh, James and uh, and Revira and some of our folks on the um, on the uh, the U.S. side, we built we built partners that to this day are some of the most productive partners at Salsify, and that was a really thrilling experience. And I learned a ton there. I would aspire to somehow get back um, to a, a European centric role at one point or another. Mm -hmm. Our company has a lot of global expansion ambitions, so fortunately, I get over there reasonable on time. I, I just love operating in that market. It's mm. a very exciting place to be, and uh, the dynamics uh, really keep you on your toes. It's for sure very diverse. Yeah, I mean, us being a, a German company, obviously, yeah. I know. You notice how I didn't I, say I, anything I, about yeah, Germans. Yeah, 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 yeah I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I cut around that. They they have their own quirks. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's principled. I mean, my my blood. My mom's Swedish. My dad's German. I have German in me. Yeah. I'm very process oriented. I yeah. just had my 360 with my boss and she said, you know, you're too process oriented. And I said, uh, my business and my DNA is process. If you don't follow a process, yeah. then things break. Uh, but, you know, in a SaaS company that's moving fast, you have to be willing to, yeah, you know. I think there is a, there is a good reason why a lot of successful 
e-commerce vendors and technology um, players actually come out of Germany, right? If you yeah. look at it, yeah. you have Intershop, Demandware, which is now uh, owned by Salesforce. Yeah. You have um, Hybris, which was acquired by SAP. You have our company products up. You have Spriker, right? Which is making a name for themselves in yeah. commerce right now. Yep. You have the Shopify founder who is German, yeah. right? So I think um, like process and, and data and, and having accurate data and so on and look at SAP, right? I mean, it, it can't get more German than this, basically. <laughs> there's, there's a reason why, why it is. And I think that that is probably one of the um, advantages that European companies have is they typically their markets, they, they operate in are too small to build a meaningful global or a meaningful big company while yeah. if you if you own the US market basically that is a sizable market right you it gets you a long way but as a let's say Polish company or Dutch company or even German company you have to look abroad quite quickly and and that forces you to implement that muscle to understand other markets and other let's say even data structures and, and yeah. stuff like this very early on now yeah the playbook for uh expanding a SaaS company from US to Europe or the other way around uh, is still a really uh, broadly unexplored field. Upfront Ventures did a nice white paper um, that we might link in your notes. I'll share it with you. That sort of looked at the attributes of how US companies approached expansion into the European markets. Where are the places you should put your headquarters? Uh, you know, what's the type of uh, expat talent you should put on the ground and for what reasons? And and actually, how do you think about your your go to market strategy on day one? Uh, you know, it's it's you cannot you can't boil the ocean. Right. So you need to land somewhere and you need to be really principled about where you're going to go to market and where you're going to hunt for for new business. Right. Uh, and if you if you try to do too many things at once, you, you don't uh, produce results. And so as a whole field of work that I think uh, someone could spend a lot of time doing for the benefit of a, a whole ecosystem. Um, but for now, there's just a lot of people like myself who <laughs> have enough uh, scar tissue to yeah. sort of know, uh, you know, where to start and, and what uh, what to get right first. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the funny thing is it works both ways, right? It's for an American company coming to Europe. Yeah. It's probably culture shock, realizing there's 24 different languages spoken, yes. right? <laughs> and you have different employment laws in, yeah. in, 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 in every uh, country, basically. And sometimes yeah. even within states, within countries, there's different <laughs> laws and yes. so on. Yes. Uh, but the other way around, the same, right? There's a saying for, uh, for European entrepreneurs, if it hasn't happened in the US, it didn't happen, basically, right? So if you're not relevant in the US, yeah. uh, you're, you're as, a, as a tech company, you're not... Yeah, you're not re- relevant, right? You might be known in your home market, but uh, you need to make a name for yourself also in the U.S. Co- content for a future podcast is get let's get the founders around the table and just talk about expansion in both directions. Like absolutely, day one, what do yeah. you do? How do you approach it? And how do you even employ people? Yeah, you know, on both sides of the 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 pond. Yeah. Just how do I hire my first team? You know, what do you can you can I hire someone ten ninety nine? What are those questions? That's that's a good content for the next one. When we opened our first uh, product up office in San Francisco, we figured out um, after like two three weeks that the guy that we hired was actually uh, a daytime an Uber driver. <laughs> 
<laughs> and he would just reply to emails uh, late at night and that got us suspicious at yeah. one point yeah but right? he was a customer success manager and uh, he was running customer success out of a uh, out of a ford exactly and yeah. i don't know these kind of things happened a couple of times to us so until yeah. we actually got it right in the in yeah. the u.s i think it took us like almost three senior vp hires right and uh, I think now we've got it figured out, but um, it costs a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're nearing the, the end of the episode. Last question I have for you is, um, if you were to start a, a company, a new startup right now, I mean, you're an entrepreneur, Christian, um, in which area would you look at? Um, you know, I'll tell you what, the, the one thing that I really think uh, is ripe for disruption is electronics recycling. Okay, that's interesting. So I, so I, I, uh, I actually have zero ambition to do anything more in commerce. Uh, I don't know, maybe, I, maybe there's one or two things that are other people's ideas, but if it were my idea, you know, what I think about is um, we're going through a period of time where there's a new piece of hardware for us to purchase practically every four to six months. Mm -hmm. I've had my iPhone for less than a year. It already needs to be replaced. Yeah. When we, some companies are really good with trade-in programs, but most are not. And a lot of the electronics that we purchase end up in our basement or in drawers or right. the, our closets and our mm -hmm. kitchens. And if you look around the ecosystem of where you can send those things, first of all, it's just not clear for our consumers, like where do I put these things? It's usually a recycling drive or maybe a community has a, a point program, but I actually once took time to go find one of these recycling companies in my neighborhood where I used to live. And it was like in this dark alley in this weird warehouse. And it was no place that no any consumer would want to walk into and leave anything. Um, and uh, I found out through that that uh, the, the, the supply chain and everything around electronic cycling is still, there's a few professionalized organizations in the country, but it's really, there's really nothing that's scaled. Mm -hmm. And I think that where we are is uh, we need to reuse and repurpose and use to the full effect the global supply chain that we have yep. uh, to keep this earth uh, alive for another hundred years. And uh, I don't have offspring, but I, uh, I care very much about what I leave behind. And mm -hmm. I think that that's an area where, especially in the U.S., we just have a lot more work to do. So were I to be, be homeless and without an idea tomorrow, that's probably where I would start. I think you're spot on with that. Um, to add more color, there is um, an initiative by the European Union um, that was started two years ago. It's called the Digital Product Passport. Mm. And the main objective of that initiative is um, to amplify the circular economy. And they are actually the industries they have on their mind where they want to start. One is uh, fashion, um, fabrics and so on. And the other one is electronics. Mm. Because the same thing that you just said, right? It, it yeah. accounts for a lot of pollution and, um, yeah, and uh, a negative impact on, on climate and so on. And yeah, I think... This needs to be a business case, basically, not just for someone who is orchestrating it, but also for the manufacturers themselves, right? So at one point, it needs to be attractive for some someone like Philips or Samsung or Sony and so on yeah. to be part of that circular economy, right? And, and make it an essential part of their business model, because I think it can be good for everyone in the end, but some certain, let's say, 
foundational thinking needs to change for that right at the yeah. moment more revenue for a brand means more goods sold and more goods sold means more resources used basically but it doesn't have to be like this i guess yeah yeah just ripe for opportunity i think europe in a lot of ways tends to be ahead of us in thinking about the environment um and uh you know we have different reasons within the states why one state or another might be a little bit more advanced, but there's a lot more that we can do. And I think there's a lot of room for some entrepreneurship to to disrupt and make it go faster. Yeah, those are great closing words. Yeah. Christian, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You're welcome. And we're off. Cool. Really cool. <laughs>